And now we go on to the scripture reading of, of, uh, for today. It is a very important scripture reading. As you know, we have been celebrating the Reformation. It was very special, the Reformation was. It was much more significant than, than, than we realize here in the 21st century. And we, we properly went through the five solas. But there was another truth, a truth that is often overlooked in, in celebrating the Reformation. And that is the truth that we are focusing on today. And it is the truth of the priesthood of all believers. That all of us have direct access to God as a result of being justified by faith, by Christ, uh, by, by faith, by Christ. What's the third one? By grace, 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 grace. <laughs> based on Scripture alone, based on glory to God alone. This passage is what we might call the classicus, the locus classicus of the priesthood of all believers. And it's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living uh, way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What do we know about God's word? The past withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord stands forever. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is everlasting and sure and true. And we thank you, dear Lord, that we're able to come and, and open your word and listen. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will bless everything that is said and done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The streets were thronged with people. Faces looked down from every window. Men and women crowded the roofs to catch a glimpse of the man as he passed by. It was difficult to force a way through this crowd of commoners. And besides, Sturm, the person responsible for the man's safety, feared lest some Spaniard might deal the reformer a blow with a dagger. So they turned into the court of the Swan Hotel. From there they got into the garden of the House of the Knights of St. John. And from there got into the court of the Bishop's Palace without again appearing on the street. The court of the palace was full of people, most of them evidently friendly. It was here 
that old General Frunsberg, the most illustrious soldier in Germany, who was later to be conqueror of the famous Battle of Pavia, clapped Luther kindly on the shoulder and said words which have been variously reported. My poor monk, my little monk, thou art on thy way to make a stand as I and many of my knights have never done in our toughest battles. If thou art sure of the justice of thy cause, then forward in the name of God and be of good courage. God will not forsake thee. From out of the crowd here and there, from every corner, came voices saying, Play the man, fear not death. It can but slay the body. There is a life beyond. They went up the stairs, entered the audience hall, crammed with people. Finally, they arrived at where Luther was to stand before the emperor, Charles V of Spain. Aleander, the papal legate, said, the, poo the fool entered smiling. He looked slowly round, and his face quickly sobered. Luther faced the emperor, but all eyes were fixed on Luther. One of the things that I've discovered this fall from the tour overseas and from just studying all of this from two volumes, this was taken out of one of those volumes of, of Lindsay's History of the Reformation. One of the things I discovered was that there were dimensions that we did not we do not really understand or appreciate. One of the dimensions of the Reformation was that this big audience hall at this diet, which was basically a general assembly for all the powerful people in the empire to come. They had come to see this poor, this little monk, Luther, and what he was going to say or how he was going to respond. The issues at stake were momentous, the most important being how one is saved and the role of the papacy, the pope and the priests and others in that salvation process. It had to do with reforming the Roman church and freeing its subjects. The issues involved a power struggle between the spiritual realm, the church, and the temporal realm, nation states. They had to do with principles of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the roles of church and society. And the eyes that were looking on were princes, dukes, archdukes of the empire. They, they were the cardinals and the bishops and, the, and all those others who were representing the pope. And they were ambassadors from all the countries, including England. They were all there, crammed, standing room only, in that audience hall, that large audience hall. Allow me, since I've just gotten started, to continue this tangent <laughs> before we go to the exposition of the word. Luther had come to understand and to appreciate two astounding truths. There are more than that, such as Scripture alone and so on. The first astounding truth is that a person is justified by faith, not by the works of the law and not by faith plus works of the law, but that a person is justified by faith in Christ. And he also understood, and this is the second astounding truth, 
that we've not yet looked at in our series, that all believers are, in fact, priests before God. You see, if you and I are justified by faith alone, if we trust in Jesus Christ alone, and we know that it is by God's grace alone, then clearly, then obviously, we can go to God directly, alone, without priests, without the others that are there. We have access to His throne of grace. That's what's obvious to us in Scripture, but it wasn't obvious in that day. In fact, they had all been washed. They had all been, uh, they had all been brainwashed, that is. They had all uh, been taken by this idea that, that the only way in which you could come to God was through the priests and through the sacrifices uh, uh, and through the, the sacrificial system. They held to an old maxim that went back to Cyprian in the third century A.D., Bishop of Carthage, in which he stated, outside the church there is no salvation. And the way they interpreted that maxim was, outside the visible church in Rome, there is no salvation. The Pope in Rome held the keys to the kingdom. By a single word, he could cause a king or, to, or a peasant or whomever or a nation or a world. I, I, I'm sorry, or a land. You have to remember, I'm getting older here. <laughs> he, he could compel any of those, send them to perdition by his own word. And they would do that. They, they had... Uh, they had a repository of God's grace. It was like they, they had a, a box or they had something, a container that had God's grace and they could take God's grace out and hand it to somebody and say, here's this grace, but they could also withhold from giving that grace out. For example, in the sacraments, the sacraments lasted from birth to death, from, from the sacrament of baptism to the sacrament of extreme unction. From the sacrament of baptism, uh, you would uh, have the grace of new life and justification given this little baby. If you withheld that grace and that little baby did not have a new life and that, new, and that little baby did not have justification, this is what they believed. In the sacrament of penance, you had the grace of the forgiveness of sin. If, if you were not given the, the, the sacrament of penance, you had no forgiveness of sin. The sacrament of penance is especially egregious. Because in the sacrament of penance, which was defined more precisely by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, the great theologian, medieval theologian, upon which all of, all of those following Aquinas depended, uh, Thomas Aquinas said there were four parts of penance. There was contrition, there was confession, there was, there was absolution, and there was satisfaction. Contrition is feeling sorry for your sin, and confession is coming and confessing it to a priest. Uh, the absolution is that the priest says, te absolvo, I absolve you. The human priest says this. And then you have to do certain aspects of satis satisfaction, uh, which would be for those sins that are not covered by the absolution uh, of, of your sin. They all believe that this was where you got the grace of forgiveness. The papacy held a stranglehold on the souls of men 
including the kings, including a lot of these people that were sitting there between Luther and the emperor. Luther wrote voluminously. After he nailed those 95 theses there, he began to be attacked here and there, and he began to respond here and there. And he, would, and he would go to these debates, and after the debate, he would come home and he would write down what happened in the debate. They would publish that, and that would go all over, all over Europe and into England and Scotland. He kept everybody well informed, and he had a lot of tracts, and they call them tracts, but most of them were books. And one was a book, it wasn't as long as some of the other books, that was entitled The Liberty of the Christian Man of which he said that this is the sum of the Christian life. The liberty of the Christian man. And there was a basic theme statement in that book uh, of the liberty of the Christian man. And that uh, theme statement was, a Christian is the most free man of all, subject to none. Subject to no pope. Subject to no priest. He is the most free man of all, subject to none. And the argument was that priests were on the same level as laity. Laity were on the same level as priests. They weren't any more, priests weren't any more spiritually uh, capable than, than the laity are. That was his basic argument. He, said, he wrote, here you will ask, if all who are in the church are priests, by what character are those whom we now call priests to be distinguished from the laity? I replied, by the use of those words, priest, clergy, spiritual person, ecclesiastic, and, in, and injustice has been done. For the Holy Scripture makes no distinction between them, except that those who are now boastfully called popes, bishops, and lords, it calls ministers, servants, and stewards who are to serve the rest in the ministry of the Word. That was our Luther. This tract had a liberating effect on the leaders on the world's powerful, influential people that caught hold of that tractate. And this tractate was sitting on a table that was between the emperor and Luther. And those attending it were what I call prosecuting attorneys for the emperor. There was a Professor Eck and there was Aleander that we already spoke of there in that quote, the papal legate. And they were there to make sure that Luther was condemned, stood condemned. And they were about to demand from Luther that that tract and all the other books that he had written that they have on that table would be wrong and that he would uh, retract them. That's what they were hoping. But the Reformation was in a sense defined by Luther's response. If you can show me in Scripture that there are things that are wrong, then I will retract it. But I cannot, by my pure conscience, do so apart from that, that apart from the sole scriptura. And he said, here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. That's what we're celebrating. That's something, big something. So we come to our passage, and it's divided into two parts, 19 through 21 and 22 to 25. And it's talking about the privilege we have to have access to God, to have access to God, 
to have boldness to approach the holy place, to be able to draw near to God. That is a privilege. And verses 19 through 21 give us the basis of that privilege. And verses 23 through 25 are, are three exhortations that give us the responsibility now that we have that privilege. Let's begin in verse 19 through 21. The basis for this privilege, first of all, verse 19 to 20, a way has been prepared. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Brethren, since we have confidence, the word is better translated boldness. I don't know why they translate confidence because the word, wherever I see it in scripture, I mean, if you go to a Greek dictionary, you'll, it'll have this word and it'll say boldness. It's boldness that we have to go and you ought to be bold to go into the presence of, of, of God and it's into the presence of his holy place. This is not an exhortation, let us be bold. This is a statement. We have that boldness. The entrance is already open. Whenever I think of the throne room of God, the holy place, I always think of Esther. <laughs> Esther, you remember Esther? And you remember King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, whichever name you want to use for, for him. There was only one law that if somebody went into his audience room, which was his throne room, not being summoned, there was only one law to put him to death unless he put forth the gold scepter. Now it's on a human level, a human throne room, Ahasuerus, and Esther realized that she had to go there and present herself, and she stood there at the entrance, and providentially he held out the golden scepter. That was King Ahasuerus, big man, Medo-Persian Empire leader, I love John. John, all the disciples were special. If you think about it, they were fishermen in the Sea of Galilee. There were a bunch of fish there. They would get these fish in his early life, and they would uh, take them, and they would sell them uh, to, to, to people, you know. There was a lot of fish to be sold, sold there in this way. It goes from selling fish to, to writing a gospel, which is one of the most beautiful gospels and important gospels that we have, to writing letters to churches, to writing the apocalypse, Revelation. And there he's in his old age, and, and he has his vision, and he's describing the throne room of God. In Revelation chapter 4, he says, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting, uh, the, he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. From the throne went flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of, of thunder. And we go on and skip a little bit. There were four living creatures, and they were there un, without ceasing, saying, holy, holy, uh, holy. In, is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You know the, the rest of all that and how they were praising God and they were worshiping God. Entering his holy place. What it says here in this verse is, therefore, brethren, since we have boldness to enter the holy place. That's what we have. You're, you're familiar with the biblical narrative. Adam and Eve with fellowship with God. Then they sin against God, then they lose a fellowship with God. In fact, it's quite drastic. They're driven, driven out of the garden. 
he puts flaming sword side by side, I forget how it's worded, and he puts some cherubim there to keep them from coming back and taking of, of the tree of life, you, you'll remember. But you'll remember how, how on Mount Sinai, God instructed Moses, don't let anybody set their foot on the mountain or they'll die. So they've set boundaries they, all around the mount, mountain there. You remember the, the tabernacle and then the temple. You had the outer courts and then the close courts and then you had the holy place. And then you had a veil which separated the holy place from the holy of holies. No one went in that holy of holies except the high priest once a year at Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement. In New Testament times, they used to put a rope around the ankle of the high priest to make sure that if something happened to him while he was in the holy place, they could pull him out of the holy place. A great chasm, a great separation, a great division took place from having access to the holy, righteous God. Think of all the priests that offered sacrifices down through the centuries, hundreds, thousands of years. Think of all the lambs that were slain. In one day, David slew 1,000 rams, 1,000 lambs, and 1,000 bulls when Solomon was anointed king of Israel. In a New Testament time, Josephus tells us that there were two million people attending Passover. Now, whenever Josephus says that, you take one zero off of that. So it's two, <laughs> 200,000. 200,000. But that's a bunch of people. And, and we're told that you have one lamb for every 10 people. So that's 20,000 lambs. They had where the temple was a hole down through the rock into the place below that had a channel that would take the blood, and I think it was to the Ben Hinnom Valley. I may have been the Kedron, but I, I believe it's a, you know, my, my mind. To take all that blood of all those, of all those lambs that were slain. Millions of animals throughout the ages. All leading to Christ. And then we come to Christ and we read, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. What a dramatic picture. His blood, the veil, which is his flesh. The veil, getting back to the veil, it kept us separated from the holy of holies. Now we're told in Scripture that the veil was rent from top to bottom. God rent that veil, indicating symbolically that now the way is open into the holy of holies to God. You know, we read in, in the Mishnah tractate, Yoma, it tells us that in Jesus' day, that veil was actually two veils, 18 inches apart, 90 feet high, 30 feet wide. Those veils were rent in two. Rep having represented the inaccessibility of, of God, it now represents that he is totally accessible. We have boldness to enter the holy place. And the costly prize, price to atone for our sin so that we may enter boldly the holy place. 
His blood, His flesh. That was the price. That was the price on our behalf. The author of Hebrews goes on and says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so not only we have a way prepared, but we also have a great high priest has been provided. Hebrews 8.1 says, now the main point in what has been said, by the way, verses 19 through 21 are, are summarizing what happened in chapter 1 through 10. Verses 23 to 25 were summarizing what's about to come Faith, hope, love, 11, 12, 13, or early part of 13 in chapters 11 through 13. Hebrews 8, 1 reads, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. Paul writes similarly in Romans 8, 34, Who is the one who condemns? It is Christ who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we read, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Can you grasp all of this? It's hard to grasp from a human perspective. It's not talking about human things. It's talking about what Christ did for us. He has prepared a way through his blood, through his flesh, and he is our great high priest. And we're able to be right in the middle of that, of that room, that throne of grace, with Christ there, with God there, having communion with Him. That is a truth. The priesthood of all believers. Well, we then come to what the consequence of all this is. Verses 22 to 25. In their proper order. The proper order being, first, drawing near to God, second, holding fast our confession for others, and third, stirring up one another to love and good works within the body of Christ. How can you summarize anything more clearly as a vision of a people of God than that, based on verses 19 through 21? First of all, let us draw near with a sincere heart. This is exhortation number one says, draw near with a sincere heart of full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. A sincere heart of full assurance of faith. Luther distinguished between faith and faith. One, he said, there is faith that is what you believe. It's all that you believe. You, you call that your faith. He said, the other faith is trusting the Lord Jesus, relying upon, depending upon. And that's the word, that's the nuance that we have here uh, in this context. A sincere heart full of assurance of faith, of trusting the Lord Jesus. Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed 
uh, with pure water. In the Old Testament, there was a mosaic ceremony for the priest, a couple of them actually, as the priests approached to do what, what they do with the sacrifices. Okay, Guess what they did? They did two things. Number one, they sprinkled them uh, with hyssop, which was basically ashes and blood. And, this, and, and the other thing they did was they ceremonially washed with water. Both of these representing their cleansing so that they would be in a position to be able to offer the sacrifices uh, for the people. Here we have something different, something beautiful. Here it says that we, you and I, have already been cleansed. We've already been washed. Literally, this passage should read, having had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and having had our bodies washed with pure water. It's a, it's a perfect passive participle. I know you, all of you know what that means. Perfect passive means that something happened in the past and we are now living in the light of what happened in the past and it is ours. We're living in it. That's what these verbs are. We've already been cleansed. We've already been sprinkled. <laughs> All of this is already done. Remember 1 John 1, 7? The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Remember? It's the truth. The main question is, are you and, or, and am I taking advantage of drawing near? Do we draw near? Do we realize we can draw near? Do we love to draw near? Do we, and I speak for myself, I love football. I love to watch college games. I like to watch the pro game. I like to, anything to get me away from politics, I watch. <laughs> Except that politics has gone into sports, which, which I don't like. Um, I, I see myself as without hope in terms of loving God and being in communion with God on a continual basis. Now that doesn't mean that we have to be praying, 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 praying. There's all kinds of ways we can be in touch with God and have, have communion with God. Walking with Him, living with Him, depending upon Him, all of these various aspects are included in communion with God, I, I should su suspect. But we also ought to be praying. <laughs> That's a pretty important thing. You'll look, if you'll note Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, others, they spent hours in prayer. Knox, a praying warrior. Why don't we do it? Where is our devotion? Where's my devotion? This is what Luther discovered, one of the things Luther discovered. I'm glad for Luther, glad for Calvin, glad for all of them. It assumes a living faith on our part. That was exhortation number one, reality number one. Exhortation number two, reality number two. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, this could be an internal thing for, for us, holding fast our confession on this. I believe in God, oh Lord, help me to believe it and hold on to what I believe. It could be, ha, have, to, have to do with the perseverance of one's life, especially in this world in which we live, in which you have rampant secularism and non-Christian ideologies and oppressing to give up your faith. It's a push in society and in the world today, and, and surely that aspect is included in this particular exhortation, but is it limited to that? I don't think so, because uh, throughout Hebrews you have two, two phrases that occur generally here and there in important places. You want to know what they are? You waiting to hear what they are? Can I remember what they are? <laughs> Draw near to God and hold fast the confession. Those two phrases are used several times in specific areas throughout Hebrews. And when he says draw, when he says hold fast the confession, he is writing to a, uh, to a Jewish, believing Jewish community that is under persecution. And he's telling them to hold fast. You know, if you were a Jew, not a Jewish Christian, you sort of had protection under the law, but not Jewish Christians, because they were Christians. And things were going worse. It was going sour for Jewish Christians in that day. Confessing Christ is really professing Christ in this instance. They're professing to the world. They're not ashamed. They're not afraid. As Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Pro confessing Christ is professing Christ and doing so without wavering in that kind of a situation. We need to be professing Christ without wavering. You know, beginning in our Jerusalem, you know, it's getting rather diverse out there in our Jerusalem. Diverse peoples, diverse things happening. I go to Kroger's. Uh, a lot of people that don't look, especially like most of us do here in this congregation. Uh, I went overseas to London, and I had the privilege of being with dear friends in London who head up the Christian heritage in London and in, and in Cambridge. And I, I lived with them for a while. They took me on this tour, this Christian heritage tour of Reformation. And so we would walk about half a mile from their house uh, to the underground. And then we'd walk down, get on the underground, and, be, and we'd be sitting across from this woman or a man or whoever. She'd start asking them whether they believe in Christ. I was a little taken back at it at first because I thought, well, that, that's, a, that's a little bit uh, quick, you know. She wasn't afraid. She was fearless. It caught me off guard, but it also caught me to thinking about old Paul Fowler and how he responds to people and how, what he thinks about what he believes and what he does. And I also, we, we went to a grocery store and she was in the grocery store and I sat outside, there was a chair there, 
and old man Fowler sits there at a chair and watches these young children that are going to school go by. You know those children? I, I looked at them carefully and numbered them. Two-thirds of them looked like they were from the Middle East uh, or, or somewhere not from England in their public school in a more plush place outside London. I go downtown to London, it's not the same London. Multitudes of people, I mean, you, you, you're crowded. It, it, it's not like it was back there 30, 40 years ago when, when I spent my time there. Go to Europe, the same thing is true. Go to Edinburgh, Scotland, where I got my doctorate. True there too, busy as can be and a lot of diversity. My dear friends, Christianity is the most diverse religion, the diverse group of people in the world. God meant for us to be diverse. God created us to be diverse. We should have no fear in being diverse. We ought to love diversity. And we ought to be out there with a diverse people's welcoming them and inviting them into the life of this church. And let Jordan preach to them the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to go out into our neighborhoods and invite them very specifically and carefully. Now, I'm not telling the session what to do, but session, listen. We ought to go out and have a, have a means of going around the whole neighborhood, the new houses. I understand that there are a lot of Hindus coming into this particular area, that, that our own school has Hindu children. And that's beautiful. Did you know that we have an ESL program here at church now? Do you know that we have a Korean Methodist church and a Redeemer Presbyterian church meeting here right now? You know that we may have a Chinese church that uh, may come and also use our facilities here now. Praise the Lord that the leadership of this church sees fit to reach out in every way possible to the diversity that lives around us and that, and that we as a people need to grab onto that and love it and care, care for it and, and say, bring it on, we love that, and welcome them into our community. Welcome that into our community. And where, where does our hope reside? It certainly doesn't reside in Washington. It says here, for he who promised is faithful. I know if my wife were still alive, she'd say, Fowler, shut up and sit down. It's over 25 minutes. Allow me to add this little part here. Remember Jeremiah? Lamenting, that's lamentations, lamenting the fall of Jerusalem. Imagine if you were living in a situation and here was your city and, and, and an enemy came in and killed many of your kin, killed people, destroyed the temple, destroyed houses, everything. They were actually camping on his house camping on where he lived, in Anatot. He was a priest uh, of the sons of, 
of Hilkiah. Hilkiah was that fellow that found the, the book of the law in the temple in the days of Josiah. And he's descended from that Hilkiah. This is what he writes after all of that had happened to him, all that loss of life and everything. You want to know what he wrote in chapter 3 of Lamentations? This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Holy Ghost and, and teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Where does our hope reside? For he who promised is faithful. Finally, exhortation number three, reality number three. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are three verbs here that are very strong. Stir up. Do not forsake. Encourage. And you notice they're all with sort of one another's. Stir up one another to love and good works. Forsake not our own assembling together and encourage one another. It's in one another passage. We need one another. This church is so important. That love ought to be demonstrated. I mean, we ought to be loving each other big time, not just standing up at the very beginning of a service and saying, peace be with you, which is important and which we do and which we ought to do. We ought to, that's what they said, shalom aleichem, aleichem shalom and all that kind of stuff from the very beginning in the Hebrew. But we ought to be loving one another. We ought to be known. As that assembly, that congregation, that people that so loves one another, that so cares for one another, that stirs one another up to love and good, good works, and, and, and we don't want to forsake coming together to worship, to be together, to, to, to help and, and to encourage one another. And we ought to do so until the day. Because it says here, all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think I can see the day drawing near. You know, D-Day has already happened in the life of the church. Jesus came. He shed his blood. He gave his flesh. D-Day has come and gone. There is going to be a day of victory coming. I always said, I was born on the day they declared war on Germany, December the 11th, and my wife was born on the day they declared peace, May the 8th. And it's been war and peace all through our life. <laughs> she didn't like that joke very much. 
but she's not here to complain, you know. She, she's at peace in heaven. Day of victory, day of reckoning has come, but in the meantime, in the meantime, we need to be drawing near. We need to be holding fast our profession of faith. And we need to be encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, let us bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, ever fresh, ever new. Father, your truth is astounding. Your ways are astounding. Father, give us the grace we need, the, 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 all that we need to reach out and to love one another and to love those around us in our neighborhood and, and further out into the world. And help us, dear Lord, especially to draw near to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.